0: very tempting to sit up on the stage and we could do a kind of Jackanory thing, uh, which would perhaps give the appropriate storytelling approach. I might just kind of perch here. Uh, Patrick, thank you very much and thank you for the opportunity to uh, to be here on a, a Sunday morning at this extraordinary festival. Uh, as Patrick says, my name is Robert Wilton. Uh, I live just a couple of miles uh, that way uh, between Port Isaac and Port Gavern uh, on the coast there. Uh, I actually spend a lot of my time in the Balkans. Uh, I have a day job in Albania, and my partner and I run a charity in Kosovo uh, just across the border. And so every uh, Friday evening and early every Monday morning, I get this long bus journey uh, between Tirana and Pristina. And on that bus journey, uh, I pull together the Controller General novels. And the books uh, tell of the activities of a secret department of the British government which uh, many people have never heard of, for obvious reasons. Uh, but it's been active, uh, it turns out, behind the scenes at the most critical moments of British history for at least four centuries or so. And we know a bit more about it because of the archives, the secret archive of the Comptroller-General, which was discovered under Whitehall uh, a few years ago. And each of the, each of the books, in the Controller at General series, uh, uses documents from the archive uh, to kind of to illuminate and to, to fill out uh, the book. Uh, and so today I thought I would read uh, just a couple of uh, pieces. Uh, the first thing I'm going to read is from the, uh, one of the books which focuses on uh, 1805 uh, and the period when uh, Napoleon was within 24 hours of invading Britain uh, and he was camped at uh, camped near Boulogne uh, with an enormous invasion army and it would only have taken a change in the wind to put that army on on Dover beach where they would uh, almost certainly have overrun uh, the the British defenders. so a very tense uh, critical moment uh, in, in the defense of this country uh, and this particular uh, book I, I picked out because uh, the, a lot of it is, a, is Cornish themed there's a strong uh, Cornish flavor to it, and the main character, this rather enigmatic man called Tom Ross Carrick, uh, actually uh, grew up uh, in this part of the country, and uh, the opening scene uh, of uh, the events that are captured in this book happened uh, just on the coast here. A shipwreck is a roaring machine of destruction. The schooner's bow was wedged in a cleft of rocks now, thrown up by a muscular shove of the sea. Her spine was broken, and the clawing of the raves around her carcass was pulling her apart. Giant breakers threw bursts of destruction back and forth over upper decks long stripped of men and cargo. Roaring out of the furnace, In swoops and punches, the wind plunged down to snatch ropes from cleats and tear sails from their yards, to dance and snap away in the bilious sky. Out in the darkness of the sea, casks and spars bobbed and disappeared. Somewhere, a last living body lost its air and flailed sluggish to nothing. Just the skeleton of the schooner was left now, to be swallowed piece by piece by the foam. It happened only in black and white, and a sick flickering of grey and green that shifted between them under the helpless moon. Down in the little fishing village, where the storm wind whined and whooped through the roof slates and and threw blasts of spray down the narrow streets, Parson Trewint looked out into the darkness of the bay, leaning into the gusts with his arm thrown up against the violence of wind and water. As clergyman, he muttered a prayer to an indifferent god to bring his parishioners through the maelstrom. As local magistrate, he frowned at the thought of tomorrow's damage, of the disputes over fallen chimneys and scattered lobster baskets, of the scuffling over debris deposited on the beach once the storm had blown itself out and the sea had receded. And as a man, widowed, exiled and forgotten in this mean extremity of the world, he wondered about the terrifying and lonely deaths of the men on the schooner, far out along the cliffs and surrounded by vengeful nature in fullest flood. Now, surely, they were all gone, just so much driftwood and grit in the retching of the sea. The parson let his arm fall, stared out into the storm, then turned and hurried home through the slippery alleys. But miraculously, out of the desert of the sea, out of the inhuman carnage of the dying ship, out of the clutch of the waves there came a man, an unconscious, bloodied man found on the rocks, white and still. Some freak of providence had thrown and wedged him there, some carelessness of the sea had let him go undrowned. Two children saw him in the dawn, approached warily and began to peck at his clothes for trinkets while the gulls waited overhead. But the sea had left nothing except rags on him and as they scrabbled the dead face flickered and gave a cough and they scrambled away over the rocks. Parson Trewint carried the body in himself with his servant, a cloth over the face and the sea mist still hanging cold in the streets. Word had come from London, by the usual means, for just such a man. So to those few who saw or heard of the body from the sea, Parson Trewint put out that he was dead after all. He sent word back locked himself in his house on the edge of the village, and tended the ghostly figure alone. On the second day there came a message, and on the second night a coach and two horses to a certain oak a short way up the valley. Long after midnight the parson and the coachman carried the unconscious body along the hedges to the oak and grappled it into the coach. The coachman bowed to the parson, jumped up onto the box and whipped the horses away into the night. Not a word had been exchanged. The parson listened for a moment to the eerie rhythm of hooves and wheels, invisible and growing fainter, brushing at the mud and leaves on his cloak. Then he turned away and began the awkward tramp down to the village. A day later, word came back to the parson, by the usual means, that the man had died, died for a third and final time, somewhere on the journey, and his existence, and the name he might once have had, and the life he might once have had, passed first into memory, and then into nothingness, while the waves still beat on the fragments of the ship on the cliffs, and ground the rocks themselves to dust. I'm looking at Patrick, who has a long hook on a pole. How many minutes have I got left, Patrick? You started five minutes so you've got five minutes. Five minutes, marvellous. Um, just for a bit of variety, that, that I said there are different books in the series. This one was uh, 1805 and the, the imminent invasion of Britain. Uh, there's one which tells of, the, uh, of how the controller at general managed the transition from Charles I to Oliver Cromwell at the height of the British Civil Wars. Uh, and there's another one coming out next year about the French Revolution. And this one, uh, The Spider of Sarajevo, uh, was launched in, 19, in 2014, uh, 100 years uh, to the day uh, after the events it described, illuminating what was going on in the mad weeks uh, leading up to the assassination which sparked the First World War. And I don't know, Patrick, whether you want a, a sort of slightly, a faintly racy scene on a night train into Berlin or, or a bit of, bit of colour from Istanbul. What do you want? We can cope with a, a bit, of, bit of racy. Very good. Uh, so David Duval is a, a young, uh, rather restless uh, rogue who has been recruited by the controller at General and sent into the continent on uh, a mission he doesn't quite understand. And late one night, a note is slipped under his door uh, instructing him to follow uh, a man called the Marquis uh, of Valfiano. And Duval manages to, to follow him uh, onto uh, a train uh, and gets into conversation uh, with the Marquis. Uh, he also meets uh, a friend of the Marquis and talks to him about uh, the politics of Europe. Uh, and he meets the, the Marquis 's uh, really rather charming daughter, uh, in whom he is much more interested uh, than his rather dubious mission. He 's been given by the note slipped under the door. Cigars and chat what their respective plans were in Berlin: games of chance. Duval declined another brandy, he'd the contact well established now and wanted to demonstrate that he would always under rather than overstay his welcome. Before they next met, someone might even tell him why he was supposed to have latched on to the fellow. Civil farewells, mutual hopes of contact in the future, though no specifics and no address, and he left them to it. The grandest game. No idea what he was supposed to be doing, not really, but what he was doing was fine. Pursue contacts as given, report any points of interest regarding European politics, be alert to suspicion or the suspicious, keep in touch via consulates and embassies, be ready for further instructions. That was all very well, but it didn't really mean anything, did it? Nothing concrete. Just keep moving, just like always. The train rattled and swayed and he enjoyed the cheerful instability of his walk and his shoulders knocking between windows and corridor wall and the warmth and the smell of tobacco and the memory of brandy on his tongue. He checked the name card and tapped on the compartment door. It slid open and two big brown eyes looked up at him. A moment and then they smiled at him. Her lips opened And her tongue pushed through between her teeth as if testing the air. Signor Duval, she said evenly, eyes steady on him. You appear to be lost. All my life, until this moment. The mouth opened in silent laughter. He had the uneasy sense it was at his expense. Your father is having another drink with his Swiss friend. She slid the door open, and his eyes followed down her throat towards her breasts, loose held in a silk dressing gown edged with fur. The fur whispered of infinite softness to her dark skin. With an effort, he pulled his focus up again, to that mouth, to those smiling eyes. That's the wonderful thing about these European trains, he said low. You never know where you're going to end up. A quick glance down the corridor, and then she kissed him on the lips. Her own lips parted, the biting of a peach. He is not a Marquis and the eyes dropped for a second. He is not my father and for both of those reasons the train does not stop here. She pressed a finger to his lips and pushed him out of the compartment. So Duval drowsed in his second-class seat, glad enough of the company there, a reverie of a world of uncertainties in which he somehow belonged, and a particular vision of gorgeous eyes and a fur-fringed throat. Eventually awake again, sour-mouthed and gazing at the plains as they rumbled past under empty sky. Then Berlin Station, late in the morning, alert now and quickly off the train onto a platform that echoed with bootsteps and whistles, overwarm and bustling with people. It seemed as though half of them were in uniform, soldiers, sailors, policemen, customs officials, porters. He was only guessing at most of them in their greys and blues and browns and greens, everyone bulky, bright-buttoned, leather-strapped, glistening with metal, and there were guns everywhere. He'd seen soldiers in England, of course, some with rifles, but they'd always seemed embarrassed by them, uncomfortable, as if carrying pitchforks or broomsticks. Here, the uniforms seemed to strut more. The little deferences to the civilians, nods and salutes and after use were heavy with implied power. And the rifles were lively, part of the man and part of the movement. Duval lurked behind a pillar while the Marquis got off the train with the girl, gathered bags and directed stewards and porters. Here, see these get to the Adlon. Back to the girl. I must send a telegram. Wait here. The usual suavity was missing. Duval didn't wait for the reply. A glance over his shoulder as he went, at the girl standing alone among the streams of people and the cases and the billows of steam. Did she catch his eye? Duval booked into the monopole, had a wash and a shave, put on a clean shirt and went down to the bar. He was on top of his man now, and the non-daughter would be a game of her own. He ordered a half-bottle of wine with his lunch and smoked a cigarette on the terrace, wondering about the best approach to the Marquis and wondering if he was supposed to be reporting his activities. Later, perhaps, when he had a little more to swank about. But later, when he visited the Hotel Adlon to present his card, preparatory to an eventual invitation to lunch, the Hotel Adlon had not heard of the Marquis de Valfierno. No such man was booked to arrive. No such man had arrived. Duval took a taxi to the Museum of Decorative Arts, as the account had indicated. Didn't bother with charades about sketching and casual acquaintance. The Museum of Decorative Arts had never heard of the Marquis either. For all practical purposes, the Marquis of Alfierno had disappeared. <laughs> Fantastic.